Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why does making friends as an adult feel so What hard? should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a foreign But that Why hookup was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want, want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Every Girl Podcast. It's your host, Josie, here. Hi, welcome back. How's it going, Josie? Yeah. <laughs> it is good, Emma. How are you? How is Chicago? I know you gave the people the update on your move, but how, yes. do you feel settled? Do I feel settled? No, I'm still missing some key things. I actually just wrote an article this past week about essentials I'm buying for my first apartment. Like that. They're all, quote, essentials because I still don't have chairs or a table. I also don't have an umbrella, was walking through the rain this morning, but I really need those mini ghosts from Crate and Barrel that we put in our Halloween decor roundup. Like, I need those. Those are the essentials. Those are essentials. So. Those are more essential than a dining room table. Yeah. It's very, like, early 20s, nomad chic. <laughs> I love hearing about your nomad chic life, Emma, because last <laughs> night I just told you I went to karaoke, which I never, ever go out on a weekday night. Like, it was a wild occurrence for me. I just was in a Mamma Mia moment where I'm like, it's summer. I'm young. I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> so I was pulled into karaoke by my friends. And I hate people who are like, I feel so old at clubs. Like kids are so young. But and I'm yeah. only 27, so I am going to be a hypocrite because I hate when people say this, but I really felt so old because especially in L.A., there's like all these 21 year olds that have a crop top and low rise jeans and they all have the perfectly oh. quaffed curtain. Bangs. Yeah, I feel like and I like, didn't wear makeup because I'm like, if it's a Wednesday night, I'm not going to put on makeup. Yeah, I'm freeze. not going to put on real clothes. I'm going to wear my leggings and the Wednesday night karaoke crowd can accept me for who I am. And it was a wake-up call to be like, Josie, you got to put in a little more effort here in, in this life. <laughs> I'm very proud of you for getting out there on a Wednesday night. Thank you, I was going to say, Wednesday is hard for me. Wednesday is not it. Yeah. Should we get on it to ask the every girl? Let's get it to it. So the question is, I'm really into wellness, but sometimes I feel like fitting in everything, meal prepping, working out, morning routine, nighttime routine, et cetera stresses me out. How do you know what rituals or routines to prioritize with your health? I'm sure you will have a lot of thoughts. I have so many thoughts, namely because this question is one I get asked all the time, but also I feel like it it really is a loaded answer. I have been there so hard. Like I've been there so hard, especially as someone who honestly I would consider myself 
obsessed with personal development and like self-growth in a great way. But obviously in the past, that has been a negative thing for a long time. Wellness was something that I obviously was really passionate about, but also simultaneously, I never allowed myself to feel good enough. I almost feel like wellness was something that I felt like I was chasing rather than something that was actually making me happier. So for example, I would get down on myself if I didn't meal prep or if I didn't eat completely, quote, clean when I told myself I would, or I would be stressed out over which workout to do. Like I remember so many times that I'd be like, well, this influencer says that this workout is the one that makes you lose more weight. Or this person says that the right way to gain muscle is how you're going to look more toned. I would literally get so confused over the workouts because there are so many out there. I would spend so much money on supplements that I would never touch again. So I have been there. I really never want to come off sounding like preachy. I have been there so hard where I was so confused. I felt overwhelmed. I was stressed out over how to care for my body. I also felt like I always needed more. I think that's why there are so many products and diets and workout routines is because we're constantly being told you need to be doing more to be healthy. You're not healthy as you are. You need more. You need a different supplement. You need a different diet. You need to cut this out, try this, do this. So it's all this overwhelm from the wellness industry. So I 100% get it. Let me tell you what has changed my life and like really brought me down this. I always say the word journey and I tell myself, Josie, stop saying the word journey, but I say it all the time. But it this is what took me down this journey. I realized that I was doing, quote, wellness completely wrong. I always say now that the purpose of life is just to be happy. Like that is literally the purpose. That's it. It is that simple. So the purpose so of true. everything that we do should be to make us happier. The only reason to take care of our bodies, to prioritize our health, is to have more energy and vivaciousness and longevity to enjoy as full of a life as possible. You know, like that's it. That's health. We can simplify it. It does not have to be more complicated to that. So it was a big wake up call for me that personally, if I feel like the food I'm eating, the workouts I'm doing, if those things are not bringing me closer to joy, even long term, because sometimes a brownie will give me that instant serotonin release, but it's going to make me feel like shit over time. Like I'm going to feel sluggish. What I mean is like you're making decisions based on what gives you the most joy long term. If that's not your focus, because it wasn't mine for a long time, we're missing the point. We're missing the complete point of what a wellness routine yeah. should mean. Another mindset shift for me was I also started to look at myself as the expert of my own body. So rather than being influenced by another popular diet or a workout or influencer on social media saying that they swear by a supplement, I was looking everywhere else besides myself for answers on how to feel good in my body. So when I did my health coaching certification, and that's where I learned the body so much smarter than we give it credit for. So then I started to look at my body as the expert because, hello, we are the experts of our own bodies. So I started to check in with myself more. What do I need? What is my body telling me rather than looking outside for answers? And that has been transformative to the way that I approach my well-being. So taking care of your health stops being really overwhelming when you know you have all the answers inside you. For example, instead of watching videos of recipes to find what foods you want, instead, literally ask your body, what does it need? Does it need more protein because it's lacking energy? Does it need more 
phytonutrients and it's craving light, fresh, raw veggies, or does it want something grounding and warming? You know, checking in with what your body needs and wants. Another option is, does it need serotonin? So you should eat your favorite meal that brings you comfort and pleasure because that's what will be most beneficial for your body. If I could give anyone a wellness tip, any wellness tip, I would say that's it. I've start looking at your body as the expert and checking in more consistently with what your body wants because I swear to you, it will tell you what it wants. Everything that we do to care for our bodies should be genuinely giving our bodies what they need, not used as a tool for external validation. I know we talked about that with Jamie Varon in that episode of there are so many things that we do that's like, oh, I'm going to go for this green juice. I'm going to buy this workout set. I'm going to try this diet because I think it will make me feel worthy is like really what it boils down to. So getting honest with yourself on what your wellness routine is actually doing for you. But to answer this person, when it comes to what to prioritize first, I will always give the same advice of prioritize stress, relief, and joy first. And that's not like fluffy advice. This is actually what you need to focus on for your body. Our bodies thrive when they're really, truly happy. And on the other hand, stress can cause all kinds of issues. I know we talked about that last week with the gut health episode, how dominant stress is in our digestion, in our gut health. Another example that I give to put to prove why stress and joy are the biggest things that you need to start with. There's something called hormone hierarchy that I learned about from Dr. Mindy Peltz. It basically explains the order in which each hormone affects the other. So second to the top of the hormone hierarchy is cortisol, the stress hormone. So the stress hormone affects our hunger hormones, our sleep hormones, and our reproductive hormones. So stress impacts everything basically in our body. On top of that, the very top of the hormone hierarchy is oxytocin because oxytocin, when it's released, it lowers cortisol. And then when cortisol is lowered, then that impacts all the others, the hunger hormones, the sleep hormones, and the reproductive sex hormones. So basically, if you want to look at one thing to impact your entire health of your body, it is to release more oxytocin and lower cortisol. So when I say literally the best thing you could do for your hormonal health and for your overall health of your body is to experience joy, to be with people you love, and to lower your stress levels. That is biologically true. When it comes to looking at our wellness routine, I think that a lot of the things we do cause stress. And so the first thing I always say is get rid of everything that causes stress, even if it is. I'm trying to go to this workout class every day and it's causing me stress. Cut it out. Cut it out. We can do something else. Let's go for a walk. Let's even prioritize rest. Let's look at rest being a wonderful thing. If you feel like you have this perfectionist mindset where you have to eat totally clean, that is where I would start. Let's work at the mindset. What are foods that are going to make you feel really good, but you will look forward to? If you don't want a salad, do not eat a goddamn salad. There are so many ways to make nourishing food very delicious and something that you're excited about. That's how I would start is go through everything that you're doing for your wellness routine and really ask yourself, is this stressing me out or is this making me happy? And then rethink alternatives to 
what is actually going to make me feel good? Another example is the that girl morning routine is so big all over TikTok. Like she's waking up at 5 a.m. She's making green juice. She's going for a walk. Amazing. If that makes you happy, I love it. You freaking go, girl. But there's a lot of people, myself included, that waking up at 5 a.m., making a green juice and going for a walk does not fill our joy cup. So instead, I would say, what would fill your joy cup? Like for me, on the days that I'm feeling kind of low, Rather than being like, let me get my ass up and let me go for a run around the block and get a green juice, I make myself the most delicious latte that I want. I play my Nancy Myers playlist, and that feels like the most perfect wellness routine. Wait, I need to stop you right there. <laughs> Everything you said was so amazing, and I needed to stop at Nancy Myers playlist. Oh my Is God, it like Emma. Soundtracks? Emma, you don't know about a Nancy Myers playlist? I'm about to change your no. world. You're about to romanticize your life okay. more than you ever thought possible. Lex Nicoletta has a Coastal Grandmother playlist, and she coined the term okay. Coastal Grandmother. So go look for that. That's really good. I also have made my own playlist, and I'm not like a Spotify. Or so don't try to find me on Spotify. But I have selfishly made one. And if I, I did look at a lot of the soundtracks, but also a lot of songs that I love that just like make me feel like I'm in a Nancy Myers movie. Oh my gosh. I also this have a Nora like Ephron Fall playlist. Oh my God. I go so deep. You have a Nora Ephron Fall playlist? Josie, oh God, Emma. these both sound like they would immediately lower my cortisol and raise my oxytocin. <laughs> right? That's why I'm like, don't listen to like, guided meditation if you're not feeling like it. Like, listen yeah, to something no. that like, really makes you happy. <laughs> okay. My new morning routine is unlocked. I'll be channeling nancy myers and nora efron every morning see and you lower. will feel so much happier i want to know your thoughts emma have you struggled with knowing what to prioritize in your wellness routine or like, how do you look at taking care of your body for a 22 year old relative to the people around me i would say i'm pretty locked in on my wellness routine and have been able to find a good rhythm at certain times but that said i do struggle with feeling overwhelmed and not knowing what to prioritize. And stress management is kind of not a thing I do. That is something I really need to grow in. And I agree with you. I just think it's so right that you really need to be listening to what your body wants and needs moment to moment. And we have all of these episodes about intuition. And that's why it's important is so you can tap in your sort of physical intuition and realize what you need in the moment. Maybe it is a higher intensity workout. Maybe it is just taking a walk. Maybe it's not working out at all. Like that kind of intuition with your body is so important. And I definitely, whenever I feel like I'm able to tap into that, that's when I feel like I'm at my most well. But I have really struggled with balancing stress. For example, this past spring, I was very on top of my wellness routine. I was working out five to six times a week. I was drinking hot lemon water in the mornings. I was meal prepping once a week. For two weeks, I was like, this is amazing. I'm crushing it. And I do actually feel better. And then I started to get more stressed and I started to sleep only five to six hours per night. And I was prioritizing all of these other wellness things over the number one wellness thing, which is sleep and stress management. 
And I got sick because I wasn't managing my stress. So the moral of the story is there are all of these things that we do for the sake of quote unquote wellness, but actually prioritizing our health does mean sticking to the basics. I'm I'm so glad yeah. that you realized I got to prioritize my sleep more than prioritizing lemon water and going for a workout because sleep under stress and joy, I would say sleep is then the next thing to prioritize yeah. because so many things happen while you're sleeping. And no matter what your goal is, if you want better gut health, if you want to change your weight, if you want to heal your hormones, you have to have optimal sleep to get to any goal. That is how we thrive as humans is when we have optimal sleep. This is what I used to do. I literally in college would go to a 545 spinning class because I wanted to go out at night and I would have a class during the day. So I was like, okay, the only time I can work out is at 545. So I'm going to get four hours of sleep, go work out, go class all day, do homework, and then go out at night, stay out till God knows when. Like, that's what I thought was the healthier option. In reality, now that I know what I would give to tell 22-year-old Josie, sleep in, Josie, sleep in, my God, sleep in, because you're basically erasing whatever good the workout could do because your cortisol is going to be way spiked anyway because your body was not able to fully recharge, detoxify all the things that happen when you're sleeping. So yes, good point. If anyone out there is deciding between getting eight hours of sleep or waking up early for a workout, I would say get sleep every time. We really went down a rabbit hole here. Thank you guys, by the way, for submitting questions. Remember to DM us at the Evergirl podcast on Instagram or send an email to podcast at theevergirl.com to get your questions answered on the show. Today's episode is a really fascinating one. Our guest is Nadia Okamoto, and she has one of the most impressive backgrounds. At age 16, she started period.org, which is an organization fighting to end period poverty and stigma. And then at age 19, she ran for public office. So she has a very impressive, what's the word that they use in the holiday gumption? Since then, she wrote a book called Period Power, a manifesto for the menstrual movement, and she co-founded August, a lifestyle brand working to reimagine periods. And guys, that is all before age 25. She has been recognized on the list of Forbes 30 Under 30, Bloomberg's 5100 to Watch, and People Magazine's Women Changing the World. I was really excited to chat with her. We talk about how our culture needs to get over the period stigma. We chat tampon tax and period poverty. What we talk about will really get you heated. It got me worked up. I know Emma also feels worked up when we discuss this oh, yes. topic. Absolutely. And then we also chat her interesting perspective on confidence and taking care of herself first, which I think you guys will take a lot away from. So enjoy my chat and let's get into it with Nadia Okamoto. start, Nadia, with understanding who you are and how you got here. Clearly, you have a calling to make a difference. When and why did period poverty become something that you felt like you wanted to make a difference with? I got really passionate about the issue at age 16. When you hear about it, it just seems like a no-brainer. Of course, people need period care regardless of their socioeconomic resources at hand. And so it was learning about the issue coupled with the passions that I already had for uh, reproductive justice, gender equality, that became this really strong equation that led me to be absolutely obsessed um, with this work. Why was it reproductive health for you? Was there anything that happened in your life that opened your eyes to why this was such a worthy cause to dedicate your life to? 
I was raised by a single mom with two sisters. So we were an all girl household and we were a very open door, open family. Like we all shared one bathroom. And I think that growing up in an environment where just being open about your body and open about your period because there's literally no cis dude in the house. It really left a mark on me. And it also put in stark contrast the patriarchal real world where it was like, oh, it's not super open everywhere else. And I think that juxtaposition really highlighted the need to break a lot of that period stigma. At what age did you learn that period stigma was even a thing? I think as soon as people started talking about periods mm. in school, I started hearing jokes about it in fifth grade about whether or not someone's on their period and like whose boobs are coming in. At that point, I still had a relationship with my dad. And I knew that if it was something that I brought up, that he would get very uncomfortable and probably pop culture as well. You know, if you think about how menstruation shows up in a lot of pop culture, whether that be through music or in TV shows I grew up with, I was recently listening to a little Wayne song and I totally didn't realize that one of the first and this is a song that I've been like listening to slash like dancing to in hip-hop classes my whole life and there's this one line that's like she's got a venereal disease like a menstrual bleed and this is in the Lil Wayne song A Billy and this is a song that like I've listened to my whole life and this is in there like the first verse what yeah I just looked it up. It's my criteria compared to your career just isn't fair. I'm a venereal disease, like a menstrual bleed. (laughs) That's probably how normal it is to put the idea of a period out there as something that's lesser than. I've talked about this on the podcast before where I have recently, as a grown woman, have had to go through a lot of healing with my relationship to my period because I, I had such this view of my period as being something that was shameful and dirty and gross. And I'm working to overcome a lot of these limiting beliefs that I have about my period that started when I was 12 and got my period and probably before then, because you're right, you hear your friends talking about like, oh my God, did you see so-and-so got her period in fifth grade? And it's this awful toxic thing. And I have to tell you, seeing your TikToks where you are openly talking about period blood openly talking about tampons. It has been part of my healing journey. So I have to personally thank you. Did you always feel empowered with your period? Or when you realized that parts of the culture saw it as something negative, did you have to work through that in order to get to the place you are today? Yeah, for sure. I think I'm still working through it. I'm very open about periods, but I will still notice. I turn to my friend and I'm like, oh, fuck, can you check my do you see my leggings? Like it's my pad showing, right? I still catch myself having behaviors like that. I post my period blood on social now, but it took six years of having this be my job until I actually did that, especially around period sex, to be honest. That's not something where I'm super confident. I think that's probably a really strong hurdle that I'll be working through for a while because I am so conditioned to think of being on my period as being really unsexy and not something anybody wants to see. And, you know, being on social media and even talking about periods, I get a lot of hate. And so I think that there is a part of me in my personal life, even where I do have a lot of voices in my head that I'm fighting. I grew up in this misogynistic world, but these stigmas are ingrained into me, regardless of how self-aware I am about them. And I try to really hold that up front to keep me challenged and and working through it. 
period sex is a big one. That's such a good example because we are programmed to like, even if we can openly talk about our periods, it's another level to look at our periods as something that's beautiful and sexy and can be a piece of our sexuality rather than it feels so separate. What do you recommend for menstruators who do feel this shame or discomfort with their periods? How do we end that both for ourselves? And then is there something that culturally we can be doing to make it a more comfortable topic that it deserves to be? So much of it is like having conversations like this. And to be honest, I think even what you were just saying too, the education of how we talk about periods and sex openly, we are still fighting for any sort of comprehensive sex ed or period education by having conversations where you talk very openly about your body and changes of your body and being in touch with your body are so important. Even like Statistically, when you're on your period, you often have a higher sex drive because of hormones changing. And I think that creating spaces to have conversations like that, and that also goes for talking about periods in a more open way, whether it be period pain, what color period blood is, how much period blood to expect. There are so many aspects of this experience that we can talk through. I I also have really loved talking to parents about how they talk about periods with their kids. And something I hear a lot that is so new to me because my mom was very open about like, she said my private parts, but it wasn't like vagina was a bad word. I didn't grow up with a nickname that was enforced by my parents, but I meet a lot of parents where it's like telling their daughters to call their vulva area, their front butt. And examples like that, most of my friends grew up in families where you just didn't say the word period. You didn't say the word vagina. You had nicknames for everything. Even small things like that around language and just being aware of the language that we use and being aware of the language that we avoid. Those are such small but significant ways of reaffirming or perpetuating certain stigmas. That's such a good point. Like how many nicknames we have about periods and none of it is a sexual powerful thing. It's like ant flow. How unsexy is that? Or it's the red devil, which is a negative thing. Like we have all these (laughs) nicknames and none of them are an empowering name. I want to like me rebrand my period name and call it something cool. But you're so right that when we do have nicknames, not only are we removing the ability to be upfront about this is our experience, but we're putting more meaning behind the period. We're making it something that's not empowering, that's not sexual or powerful. I think that definitely is the first layer is like, how are we talking about it with other menstruators? But I also wonder if the next layer is bringing non-menstruating men into the conversation as well. My friends give me shit for this and think it's so weird, but I've always wanted to talk to my brother about periods, even when he was like, ew, gross, like as a little kid. But I'm like, I'm on my period today. I need to stop by the store and get some pads. So you're going to come with me. And my friends think that's weird, but I don't want his only impression of periods to be what he sees in media. I want him to know it's a normalized thing. Yeah, the co-founder of period, the nonprofit was a non-menstruating cis classmate of mine. My co-founder of August runs so much of the day-to-day business and is an equal partner to me in growing this business. Every part of my entrepreneurial journey, it has been very, um, very inclusive of people, regardless of whether they get a period or whether they don't get a period. I'm a big believer in having that sort of partnership and inclusivity possible because we do live in a patriarchal world that is run by cis men. And so the power of having cis men at the table as allies, but also co-conspirators is such an essential part of operating in the system. It's unfortunate, but at the same time, I'm very thankful for the male friendships that I have as well. That's when it really is normalized is when it's not just normalized among the people that experience it, 
but it's a normal part of our society, period. I want to dive into the tampon tax and period poverty with you because I know that's a big mission in what you do. Can you explain for our listeners who don't know the basics of both the tampon tax and period poverty? So period poverty, it's just people not being able to afford access to period care, just as someone might be struggling to make ends meet for a shelter or food, period care is right up there with it. In most major U.S. cities, people can get period products enough for their cycle for like 10 to $15 a month on the lower end. And that is a significant amount of money for someone who is also just trying to put food on the table, right? That can be a couple of meals worth. And so there are examples, whether it be what homeless menstruators have to use if they don't have access to shelter, clean bathroom, and period products. And even if you look at some of the first ever citywide studies done, like in um, St. Louis, the first citywide study done on period poverty found that 46% of low-income women had to regularly choose between a meal and period products. And so period poverty expands the gamut of people not being able to afford any access to having to see period products as an opportunity cost to other necessities. The tampon tax, indirectly, but very much um, perpetuates period poverty. The tampon tax is a, is a nickname that refers to the sales tax on period products, considering them non-essential goods. When I first started this work in 2014, it was in 40 states. Now we've made progress, so it's a little over 20 states. I think it's in like 21 states now. But still today in 21 U.S. states, there's a sales tax on period products that exists because it's specifically by law considers them non-essential goods, so like luxury products. Meanwhile, products like Rogaine or Viagra in certain states are considered medical necessities and don't have that tax. So, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So, I always say taking down the tampon tax is not going to solve period poverty, right? Because the tax is affecting people who can already buy the product. Does it exacerbate it? Yes, because this tax can go up to 11%. And 11%, an $18 to $20 purchase, adds up. And then fundamentally, the tampon tax affirms this idea that period products are luxury items. And unfortunately, that misconception on period products being luxury items is something that stands in the way of making other legislative progress, whether that be around period products in schools or prisons or shelters or food stamps covering period products. Like that's all still something we haven't achieved yet. And so period poverty is affected by so many things. And the tampon tax is probably one of the key examples where when people tell me, oh, period stigma doesn't exist, I'm like, No, we literally have legislation that very much codifies and shows that period stigma is not only existed today, but has always been and has built into parts of our infrastructure that we live around that we aren't even aware of. Oh my God. I don't understand. And what's the argument that makes it non-essential? If we don't have these items, like before we had pads and tampons and cups and all the things that we have now women had to go lay in a field or not a field. This is not historically accurate, but it's like that book, The Red Tent. Like they had to go to a tent and just lay there. So we couldn't be functioning members of society because what job is going to be like, okay, every month for at least a few days, feel free to take off to go menstruate. Like how are these things not deemed as essential? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't fucking know they should be, but (laughs) I think that's where it's a privilege to realize if you've never heard about period poverty or you've never thought about it, like that is privilege. I've had that too. 
I've had that privilege of being like, wow, I've never had to not go to school because I didn't have access to period care. And that is a reality for many young people still today. When I was on the nonprofit side, we did this study that found that 80% of students had either missed class or knew someone who missed class due to a lack of access to period products. And states like Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, these are all examples of states where the sales tax exists. And again, we're making progress, but the reality is that we don't expect there to be free period products in public restrooms, but we fully expect there to be toilet paper. These are just things that we have become so conditioned to not expect. And to be honest, there are legislators out there who do think this is a luxury item. Very regularly, especially around the conversation around period products being accessible in prisons, there's a GOP representative, I think in Maine, named Richard Pickett, who got up and spoke against a bill that would make period products free in prisons and said, prisons are not meant to be country clubs. And to make statements like that, and by the way, he blocked that piece of legislation, but examples like that where these are beliefs that we live with, and there are even menstruating legislators out there who say similar statements. And so there's a lot of work to be done. Oh my God. I feel so privileged that I honestly assumed of course, prisons must have access to pads and tampons. Like, of course. Yeah. So the, the fact that they don't, I mean, I know this is gonna be a big question. I'm just so curious your thoughts, but is there a reason we can pinpoint why? Like to me, the only logical explanation is it's another way that, I don't know if we want to call it the government, whatever it is, is actively trying to keep low-income women down because then they're not able to go to school. Maybe they're missing tests. They're probably going to drop out of high school because they don't know a lot of the information. If they cannot afford the products necessary to allow them to go to school in their period, is it part of that bigger picture? Like, why do you think this is still a thing in 2023? Yeah. I think that the systems that govern us are a product of it, but I mean, it's patriarchy. Like we live in a patriarchal society that benefits from upholding the ideal of cis white malehood primarily. So anything other than that has not been considered in the creation of the society that we live in. And I think that's absolutely something that we will keep trying to work through. And the period stigma hurts marginalized communities of menstruators the most, but it also hurts all menstruators and it hurts non-menstruators who grow up with these inaccurate assumptions also in the world of a very strict gender binary, even if we look at how period stigma affects trans men who might still get their periods or people who are non-binary who get their periods. Shame and creating shame and stigma has been a tool of limiting people's confidence in their feeling capable to achieve their full potential. And periods are an easy target because it biologically marks when a body can now bear children, right? And so when you look at how and when some of the first gender roles are constructed around confining primarily cis women to being a wife and a mother, that is only biologically possible when someone can technically have a child, right? I think that's where there's a lot intertwined around our understanding of bodies and dependence and the patriarchy absolutely has historically seen the value of women to be just around bearing children and no more. And I think that we have very much been fighting against that. 
thank you for sharing this message. I had no idea how little support there was to fix this issue, that there were still prisons where men's readers don't have access to what they need. So thank you for being the educator and, and vocalizing this and sharing this with so many people. I think beyond the blatant financial injustice, there's also the undeniable statement it's making, which is menstruators don't matter. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. Viagra is deemed an essential. So men being able to exercise their sexuality matters, but menstruators don't. You know, it's like yeah. we are receiving these messages. It affects us all. It affects people that don't notice that there is a tax that's going towards their pads and tampons every time they have to buy it. And a couple dollars to them doesn't make a difference. Like it, it affects all of us because yeah. this is still the message that is dominant in our culture. Yeah, absolutely. A huge part of what we try to do is just start conversations about it. And with August, we consider every part of the brand an opportunity to start this conversation. So as much as we can integrate period positive, inclusive discussion around periods in anything from the packaging to the quality of the product is a huge part of our mission as a company too. It's so cool to see a brand that also has a mission to transform this space that desperately needs it. What states still have this tampon tax? I mean, obviously you don't have to list all 21 of them, but like, I'm just curious if it's in line with the policies we see surrounding other reproductive health crises like abortion. There's definitely a lot of overlap. Um, so at August, actually, since the beginning of the company, we've always covered the tampon tax wherever possible on our website. So if you order from us directly, we don't charge the tampon tax wherever it's legal for us to do that. And then when we launched in Target, we launched in about 400 doors of Target a few months ago, and we couldn't just not start to fail tax. But we recently launched this thing where we Venmo people back for the tax that they pay. So wow. if you buy August in stores, you take a picture of your receipt and you text it to us, we will within 24 hours Venmo you back for whatever you paid in the tampon tax. We call it our August Tax Back Initiative. So if you go to itsaugust.co slash tax back, you can put in your phone number and be on text chain with us for us to get that Venmo information. But also on that landing page is the list of all of the states that um, have that sales tax. So Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Wyoming. Wow. So we've made progress. Like again, that used to be 40. So we made yeah. progress, but lots to do. That's amazing that there's progress being made and we're going towards something. But my thought is like, it's 2023. Oh yeah. There are still 21 or however many states that have this tax that are deeming these things as non-essential. It's so amazing that you guys are finding your own solution rather than hoping that the the man or whatever, whatever you call it is going to do something about it, that you're solving it. How are you guys as August able to do that initiative where you're Venmoing back? Like that's so impressive, but the tax isn't going to you. It's going to the government. Well, so that, I love that you asked that question. To me, it reveals a lot of how we're conditioned to think growing up in a capitalistic society, which is we can't imagine any company eating into their profits for the sake of something like <laughs> so this. So true. But that's so exactly true. what we're doing. Wow. We're just, we're covering it. Does it affect our margins? Yes. But is that far above and beyond worth it because we're making a statement on the tampon tax? Yes. I started from the nonprofit side and working on social movement and politics. And I'm very critical of a lot of aspects of capitalism, but I also think that there is great power to building a revenue channel that's feeding impact and able to really support these initiatives. We are a company where revenue is made and we can really stick by our values and 
we might eat into our margins, but to us, it's an undeniable right choice to offset our carbon footprint, work towards plastic neutrality, do so in really thoughtful ways that are immediately offsetting our carbon footprint, investing in incremental changes, even around product innovation to make them more sustainable, covering the tampon tax, our 1% for the planet. When you check out from our website, you can donate to an organization of your choosing, whether it be providing binders to trans communities or supporting beach cleanups. These are all impact initiatives eat into our margins, yes. But to us, it's an absolute no-brainer because what the fuck are we even doing here by building a company that isn't aligned to those values? And the way we're able to do that is purely with the margin. And and to me, it's motivating and sad that to consumers, that's just so crazy. Like the idea that companies can do that. We have every ability to do that. And I think that the more we can normalize sustainable packaging or climate neutrality, like I love that being climate neutral is not impressive anymore because we kind of expect all companies to offset their carbon footprint or we should. And my hope is that eventually, if we can get other brands to take a stand against the tampon tax, covering the tampon tax won't be a big deal because it's just the norm. And I often compare it to like when you have always dated shitty guys and then you start dating good guys, your bare minimum and expectations are raised. And that's what we want to do for how you think about companies. It's so cool what you're doing because you're proving that it it's not about hoping someone else changes what you want change. And it's not leaving your fate up to someone else, someone out there that's making the decisions, that you are actively creating your own business that is going to make the change that you are waiting to see. And you're taking control of your destiny. And I mean, by your destiny, I'm talking about menstruators in general. Your destiny is all of ours. It's such a cool example of how a for-profit business can be creating so much positive impact. Because you're right. My brain was like, wait, but like, where are you getting the money from? It was a capitalist in me. So that's so, so true. And I know that you transitioned from a nonprofit with period.org to start this for-profit business. Can you talk about that transition? Why did you know that that was the right thing to do? I mean, I don't even know if I knew it was the right thing to do. I've always felt like when it comes to following my gut around certain career moves, it feels like this is what I have to do. But I think a lot of it came from the frustration of working in the nonprofit space for so long where I got into it because I was passionate about an issue. But the nature of building a nonprofit is that you're fundraising constantly. And naturally, to start a new company, you fundraise. But the goal is to become self-sufficient in the sense of you've built a strong enough business that you are replenishing with what you're making into the business to continue growing, but also to invest in certain impact initiatives. Running a nonprofit, like a 501c3 organization in society, which is a capitalistic society, means that in order to grow, to keep the lights on, to have your people paid, to grow your programs, you're constantly fundraising from corporations, private foundations, private donors. Maybe the naivete that I had as a high school student of wanting to start an organization where I don't have to participate in these capitalistic aspects and I can siloed off onto social movement and focusing on social justice. But in reality, in the world that we live in, where we live in an attention economy, you need to get the word out. Policy is very expensive. Electoral politics is so expensive, right? Electability in the way that we measure it in our polling systems today is around how much money people have raised. And so the more I learned about what does it actually mean to grow an organization and have it be sustained and how do you actually build out programs and why are we writing some grants made me realize that it was just another way of trying to work with the system, but 
taking the scraps from it rather than actually owning capital influence and power. I'm dependent on the exact system I'm trying to change to survive. And it's very frustrating. I believe that change is possible, but I do believe that it costs money. Like covering the tampon tax costs money because we are being charged money. And so there are aspects of this that really drove me towards business and social enterprise as a way to change culture. Mm. I think with women also, there's this expectation that you should sacrifice financial stability and your own well-being for the betterment of humanity and sacrifice and selflessness are what we're told to strive for. And I just don't agree with that. I think that the more we thrive individually, the more we thrive collectively. When you're able to take care of yourself, whether that's financially or whether that is you're having balance in your life and you're able to do things that bring you joy, then you give other people permission to take care of themselves and you have more energy, inspiration, resource to do even more for others. So I I think that a big part of that is transitioning the way that we've put pressure on women to always sacrifice and that maybe we collectively can do more when we are taking care of ourselves financially and just our well-being. Is that what you found? Absolutely. As a woman, as a Lincoln Asian American, talking about money has always been seen as very uncomfortable. And I've had to really get over that getting into a profession early on in my life. Literally running a nonprofit is like mostly asking people for money, right? And then figuring out how to maximize impact from that money. Running a business and starting it was we needed to raise capital and then even in selling for to customers is asking them for a transactional trade. There is an element of like, what does it take to change culture? And at what scale do you want to do that? How much of changing culture involves changing infrastructure and legislation, which I think period stigma and reproductive rights absolutely does. I also think there's a part of my own journey where I've had to do a lot of therapy and a lot of self-work even to say, I want to be well off because I went through times in my life where I wasn't financially well off and it really limited the freedom that I felt in my life, the amount of care, even healthcare that I could afford. And so I think that there's an aspect of this empowerment journey. Generations before us have fought for our ability to make our own money, for us to own our own property, for us to have our own businesses. And what does it look like for us to take advantage of that and then continue paving the way for what it looks like to have that economic mobility and economic freedom? Yeah. I I mean, I think a lot of people can hear their story and yours and that they have been told or thought, I need to be doing something selfless. I need to be sacrificing myself. I need to be working hard or I need to do more. And then when they feel like I just need to chill on the couch and watch TV, they feel like they're not good enough to do that. They feel like they haven't done enough. And so I think that there is this almost big crisis in our society, mostly of women, because we have had this conditioning that we have to be doing more, proving ourselves, sacrificing, being selfless in order to be a successful human being in society. And by successful, I don't mean financial, because obviously that's a big sacrifice too. It's like just to be worthy in society. But you're the perfect example of someone who rethought the system and rethought what it takes to actually make the change that you want, including, because that's the way I look at it is like, for you to be able to continue to helping people that need it and continue spreading this message, you do need more and more financial growth. You do need more and more well-being inside of you. You need more and more balance. Like the more that you take care of yourself, literally, the more you're able to help other people. It is not a sacrifice myself in order to help people. I think that they're one and the same. You know, the more that you're able to help yourself, then you grow in resource, but also in the energy 
and well-being that it yeah. takes to be to do what you're doing. Well, I'm flattered. I think that there are probably many people who will look at how I operate and say I'm not ethical, right? That I've primarily grown my business and like grown my own economic freedom through TikTok and Instagram, which are building on some of the largest platforms forms and corporations in the world who are also benefiting from my work. But I have faced my own criticism from myself, from people I love, from my community, from the public. And growing up with that, not backlash, but critique and feedback loop, I've actually been very thankful for because it really keeps me on my toes of always feeling humbled and curious to learn more. Like I'm always listening to audiobooks and podcasts and I surround myself with people who are very different than me in their political beliefs. I think surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded in that way, where you have similar values, but very different ways of thinking about it. Like I love trading, reading recommendations and podcast recommendations with people because I do think that so much of what I can do to be the most ethical leader I can be is to continue just being as self-aware as possible, right? My level of privilege heightens every day as my business grows, as my platform grows. And I think that that just raises the need for further self-awareness. These conversations are happening, not just in the reproductive space, but in every space. And when you think about how we're talking about climate change and in New York, we have shitty air quality right now. And how is that intertwined with capitalism? And what am I doing as a company that's producing single-use items, by the way? How do I justify, think about that, move away from that? How do I think about innovation and scaling a business in an ethical way? Because to me, I do believe that the biggest way you can make impact is to scale August. That can be a behemoth of an organization and impact on eradicating period stigma and changing people to use more sustainable products. But that is a capitalistic growth mindset. And so as I step into those beliefs, how do I be very self-aware and critical of what that actually means? And what are opposing points of views that can kind of pick apart how I think about it? That is really powerful what you just said. The vast majority of people, whether they're entrepreneurs, leaders, the vast majority of people have this mindset of like, I know right and wrong and I'm sticking to that and I'm fighting for that. And this is my point. We should be changing our minds often. If I'm obsessed with one thing today and I believe this is my cause, that might change tomorrow in a month from now. I just saw the Barbie movie. So it's like the only thing on my mind. But I think that's such a good example of how feminism has changed because it's changed as the culture has needed it to change. And if we sat here saying, no, you know, this is feminism, this is the only way to look at it, yeah. we would be missing out on, on the point of it, which is to be freeing all genders of the inequality that they feel. So I think evolving and growing and knowing that we can always be adjusting what we believe is right is the secret to success that I feel like people do not talk about. And so it's so powerful for someone like you to be saying that that's a critical part of what you do as an entrepreneur, as a leader, and as an activist. Thank you. I mean, I think it's definitely probably learned the hard way, but I, I will say this is where I think that I do see some of my mental health challenges. I have borderline personality disorder which means that I'm very self-critical. And I think that what I tell people who also have BPD is that there are aspects of my life or how I operate or how I deal with my diagnosis that I kind of see as blessings in disguise. It sucks in the moment, but it, it does make me really eager to learn and be challenged because I think that on my own, feel like I don't know anything, you know? And so... Mm. Yeah, I think that that's been probably one of the best ways of coping with some of the effects and externalities of, of my mental health has been, well, what better way to work through that feeling of not knowing anything 
and to arm myself with as much knowledge and education and exposure to other ways of thinking as possible. I am just amazed at you bringing up this self-criticism because actually the last thing I wanted to ask you about is confidence. And, And when I was thinking of what I wanted to talk to you about, I was thinking that you're the perfect person to talk to about confidence just because of the courage that you had to start a nonprofit or run for office at 19. You know, like you obviously have done so many courageous things in your life that requires confidence, or I would think requires confidence, but this added layer of knowing that self-criticism was a big piece of your journey. What has helped you get over that self-criticism and find your worth? I don't think I'm over it. I think that it's like, will always be a part of the way that I think. And I actually think that I fell into this dangerous trap for a while. I mean, very much kind of in line with the girl boss trope of feeling like I was very self-critical and did not feel a lot of intrinsic self-worth. So I got really addicted to work and social media where so much of the positive benefit of that is external validation. And so I was addicted to external validation with none of it coming from intrinsically. While it looked like confidence, it was probably more like desperation for positive external validation. So I think that that's something that I catch myself in sometimes. And I think that as an influencer slash entrepreneur, where I came into the professional world at 16, simply being well-spoken and had some adults just praising me off the walls. And that definitely got to my head, not in a way of building my ego, but I think on building this false sense of self-worth. And I had to learn the hard way that that really caught up with me. And when it went away or when that validation wasn't validation anymore, it was public disagreement that broke me. And it felt very, very painful. I've had to learn the hard way of none of this social media hype or fame or virality is forever, right? Like literally these algorithms are meant to make everybody feel like they can go viral at any moment, but the purpose is to give everybody that feeling. And I think that recognizing that and realizing what would you be and how would you feel if all of that went away? What are the things that bring you joy from it? For me, even being my alter ego, this very confident period fairy, I love making content about it. I love of the reality of it. But what I love even more are the conversations I get to have and take away from people that I meet in real life doing activations like that. And so I would just say recognizing that so much of these things, whether it be world online, validation online, or even some of the hate and everything, that's all very temporary. And at the end of the day, what you're left with when you're going to sleep is just like you and your thoughts. So it's it's maybe just understanding what that is. Like, what's the thing that it's not about the accolades? It's not about what you're achieving. It's like, what is the thing that's just you? That will be you 50 years from now. That was you when you were born. Like, what is that thing? And knowing that that is what you need to have connection to. That is what's consistent. It's so interesting hearing you explain it that way. Because like I said, the reason I wanted to ask you about confidence initially was because you had achieved so much because you did go after the patriarchy. And at such a young age, that to me, I was like, that must take a lot of confidence. And and I think the way that we as a culture and society often view confidence is what are they going after? What are they achieving? Like, oh, they've done so much, then they must have confidence. But that's such a good twist that definitely changed my mind about confidence. A lot of people maybe are going after things because they don't have that self-worth. They're using those things to prove to themselves they have worth. They're looking for extrinsic motivation instead of the intrinsic motivation. So it's not coming from what you're doing, seeking, achieving. It's like, what is that within you? What is that that's going to be there no matter what you do achieve? That connection to self is confidence. Yeah. So powerful. We are going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What is a book or other resource that changed your life? 
Pleasure Activism, a book by Adrienne Marie Brown. Oh, I got to check it out. I got to check it out. So that's amazing. Best piece of advice you've ever received? Sleep as much as possible. Great advice. What do you feel like is your purpose? I feel like you already said it so much, but summed up in a sentence, what is your purpose? Gender equality. Amazing. Such a great purpose. Nadia, tell us all about August. Where can people find you, shop the products, and then anything else you want to call attention to our listeners? Yeah, it's august.co is our website. You can find us online, Amazon, in-store, Target. And I'm just at Nadia Okamoto on socials. Amazing. Nadia, thank you again so much for being here. This was such a powerful conversation. I loved it so much. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I sure did. If this episode gave you any value or you're liking the show in general, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference for our show so we can keep growing and bringing the content that you love. If you want more info, you can find us at the Every Girl Podcast on Instagram or theeverygirlpodcast.com. Talk to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.